Dear Spurgeon, a Charles Spurgeon podcast. Lesson from Lydia's Conversion, sermon number 544, delivered on Sunday morning, December 13th, 1863, by Charles Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Newington. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Acts chapter 16, verses 13 and 14. Philippi is famous in classic story as the spot where the world's future trembled in the balance when Octavius met Brutus and Cassius in terrible conflict. The two Republican generals here ended their stormy career and universal empire crouched at the feet of Caesar. As long as time endures or human slaughter is thought worthy to be recorded, Philippi will be remembered as one of the greatest names in martial history. But when time has passed away and the records of human guilt shall have been cast into oblivion, Philippi will still have a name as the place where the first herald of the cross cried, Europe for Jesus, struck the first blow at the demons of evil and won his first victory in our quarter of the world. More filled with blessings to the human race was that conquest of a woman's heart than all the laurels which Octavius had reaped upon the bloody field. Angels looked on while Paul threw down the gauntlet of defiance to all the powers of darkness and invaded our fair continent in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. We may well look back with admiration to the gallant advance of that little band, the apostle and his few companions, who were the pioneers of the Lord's elect army in the Western world. Philippi is enrolled forever in the record of the battles of peace. The introduction of Christianity into Europe is a very humble affair. There is nothing very stately in the architecture of the house where Jesus is first preached. In fact, we have no evidence that there was any building at all. Probably it was an open-air service by the riverside. There were not enough Jews in the military city of Philippi to justify the building of a synagogue, and therefore a few women met in a quiet spot by the river's bank. A stranger might walk through Philippi a hundred times and never know of the existence of their meeting place. It was a nook so secluded and frequented by so few. Heathendom might seem to the ordinary observer to be universal in its reign, for who would care to notice the feeble company who met in seclusion to offer prayers unto the Most High God of Israel? We will go to that meeting place this morning and in spirit mingle with the few women and listen to that strange man who is addressing them and see the result produced in the heart of a seller of purple who has come with her wares from the city of Thyatira. First, we shall consider Lydia's conversion in itself. Secondly, in contrast 
with another conversion which is recorded in the chapter, thirdly, in comparison with that other, and lastly, as a type and model of multitudes of conversions in our day. First, in Lydia's conversion there are many points of interest. Observe that it was brought about by providential circumstances. She was a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira. That city was famous for its cloth-dyeing trade, which had flourished there ever since the days of Homer. The mode of producing a peculiarly delicate and valuable purple seems to have been known to the women of Thyatira. It may be that Lydia had come to Philippi upon a journey, or that while her manufactures were carried on in Thyatira, she resided during a part of the year at Philippi to dispose of her goods. The communication between the two places was very easy, and she may have frequently made the journey. At any rate, providence brings her there when the hour of her conversion had come. You will remember that Thyatira was situated in that part of the country into which Paul was forbidden by the Spirit to go and preach. Therefore, had Lydia been at home, she could not have heard the truth. And as faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God— she would have remained unconverted. But providence brings her to Philippi at the right time. Here is the first link of the chain. But how is Paul to be brought there? He must, first of all, be shut out of Bithynia, and he must be silenced in his journey through Mycenae. He must be brought to Troas, close by the margin of the sea. He must look across the blue sea and muse upon Europe's needs. He must fall asleep, and in the visions of the night, he must be prompted to cross to Macedonia. He shall ask for a ship. That ship shall be bound for Samothrace and for no other place. He must land at Neapolis, and by the same instinct, he must make his way to Philippi. He cannot go in any other direction. He must be brought there at the very time when Lydia is present, and he must find the little meeting place by the river's brink, For God ordains that Lydia shall be saved. Now, how many different threads were all interwoven here to make up the fabric of her providential conversion? In this case, God rules and overrules all things to bring that woman and that apostle to the same spot. And beloved, everything in God's providence is working together for the salvation of the elect. If there be an elect soul whom God predestines to be converted at my word, he may have brought him here from Australia by some unexpected accident, as it may seem to him, or he may have set sail for America and the ship may have drifted back. But this I know, that God will shake heaven and earth sooner than suffer one elect soul to miss the predestined moment. For when the eternal counsel runs... On such a day, that man shall be arrested by sovereign grace and shall be made willing in the day of God's power. Happen what may, God's purpose shall stand. He will do all his pleasure. We ought not to forget the prevenient providences at work before our conversion to bring us unto that spot where God was pleased to manifest himself to us. Observe next that in Lydia's case, There was not only prevenient providence, 
but there was also grace in a certain manner preparing the soul. The woman did not know the Savior. She did not understand the things which make for her peace, yet she knew many truths which were excellent stepping stones to a knowledge of Jesus. If not a Jew by birth, she was a proselyte of the gate and therefore well acquainted with the oracles of God. And though she was far away from the synagogue, some forget the Sabbath when they travel in foreign lands. Yet when the day came around, she was found with that little handful at the riverside meeting place. I doubt not that she had read Isaiah the prophet, that she could carry in her heart and remember such words as these, He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. As in the case of the Ethiopian eunuch, the scriptures she had read, though they were not understood for lack of someone to guide her, had prepared her mind. The ground had been plowed and was ready for the good seed. It was not a hard rock as in the jailer's case. She worshipped God, worshipped Him in sincerity, worshipped Him looking for the coming of the Messiah, Israel's consolation, and so her mind was prepared for the reception of the gospel. Doubtless, dear friends, in many of us, there was a preparation for Christ before Christ came to us in regenerating grace. I know that in some of our cases, the pious example of a godly father and the loving instruction of a tender mother had softened us somewhat so that though we were still unsaved and still out of Christ, yet we were like the man who was laid at the pool of Bethesda. We were close by the edge of the healing stream, and there was not in our case that sudden, that astounding change which we have seen in others. Still, dear friends, we ought to ascribe all this preparatory work to sovereign grace. I mean that before grace renews the heart, there is grace preparing us for grace. Grace may be setting the mind in activity, clearing us from prejudice, ridding us of a thousand unbelieving and skeptical thoughts, and so raising a platform from which divine grace conducts us into the region of the new life. Such was the case of Lydia. Such is the case of many providence and grace working together before the effectual time comes. Note concerning her conversion in the third place that it took place in the use of the means. On the Sabbath, she went to her gathering of her people Although God works great wonders and calls men when they are not hearing the word, yet usually we must expect that being under the word, God will meet with them. It is somewhat extraordinary that the first convert in Europe was converted at a very small prayer meeting. There were only a few women there. We have no reason to think that there were any more males than just Paul and his friend Luke. And these, you see, had come in, as we say, accidentally, and had been moved to give an address at the prayer meeting, and that address was the means in God's hand of opening her heart. Beloved friends, let us never neglect the means of grace 
Wherever we are, let us not forget the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. I say again, God may bless us when we are not in his house, but we have the best reason to hope that he will when we are in communion with his saints. Oh, what a joy it is to see so many constantly thronging our house of prayer because we have good hope that the God of salvation will meet with them. No, it is not wishful thinking, but a confident expectation. For I suppose there never is a sermon preached in this house which is not the means of the conversion of some. We have ourselves abundant testimony that as often as Christ is lifted up here, the wounded in the camp escape from death. May it ever be the case, and may you ever have, even if as yet you are unconverted, a love to the courts of the Lord's house and to the place where his people meet together. Love the prayer meeting. Do not say of it, it's only a prayer meeting. God loves to put honor upon prayer, upon the assembly of his people directly for his worship, And you may hope, dear friends, that even if the sermon shall not have been useful, and if the common Sunday service may not have been blessed, yet perhaps on Monday evening, perhaps too in that little cottage when there are only a few women present, you may meet with God. Be diligent in the use of the means. Be constantly in God's house. As often as the doors are open and your engagement will permit, For Lydia's conversion takes place in the use of the means. Note again, for we will only hint at these things rather than dwell upon them, that it was assuredly a work of grace. For we are expressly told, whose heart the Lord opened. She did not open her own heart. Her prayers did not do it. Paul did not do it. The Lord himself must open the heart to receive the things which make for our peace. To operate savingly upon human hearts belongs to God alone. We can get at human brains, but God alone can arouse human affections. We may reach them, we grant you, in the natural and common way, but so to reach them that the enemy of God shall become his friend and that the stony heart shall be turned into flesh is the work of grace, and nothing short of divine power can accomplish it. We plead with you, brethren, never forget this. We think it proper, according to scriptural warrant and example, to speak to you and exhort you to arise from the dead, that Christ may give you life. But we remind you, and trust you will never forget it, that all the work must always be of the Holy Spirit, and of Him alone. I am told in preaching the gospel to command you to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. But I am well aware, and may you be aware of it too, that faith is the gift of God. Though the scripture bids us say, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, Though it cries, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy upon him. Though our Savior himself puts it, 
Strive to enter through the narrow door. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Yet we know that salvation is neither by your striving, nor by your laboring, nor by your reformings and amendings, but that all these are the fruit of an inward and mysterious work which the Holy Spirit alone can perform. Give unto God the glory if you have been converted. Praise Him alone. Not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. He alone can cut the bands which fasten the heart. He alone can put the key into the hole of the door and open it and gain entrance for himself. He is the heart's master and he is the heart's maker. And conversion, in every case, is the Lord's work alone. Yet, for one truth must always march arm in arm with another, and no man gets correct ideas by merely grasping one truth, although the Lord opened the heart, Paul's words were the instrument of her conversion. The heart may be opened and willing to receive, but then if truth does not enter, what would be the use of an open door? But God always takes care to open the heart at a time when the messenger of mercy is nearby, that the heart may give him entrance. Paul speaks the word as surely as God opens the heart. Do not denounce the ministry. It is a temptation of modern times to be always talking as though the ministry were a magnifying of man, as though to listen to the preacher were a glorification of the creature at the expense of the maker. Now I believe there is nothing in the world which shows our humility of spirit and tends more to glorify God than a cheerful willingness to receive at his hands the golden treasure of his grace out of an earthen vessel. The weakness of the preacher becomes a foil to set forth his glory and by no means detracts from the honor due to the Lord himself. God has worked and always will work by means, by chosen men upon whom he puts the anointing of his spirit. And when the men are lacking to serve the Lord, then is the church always in a weak state. But while she has her Pauls to preach, she will not be without her God to open hearts to receive the word. Now, only one more thought upon her conversion. It was distinctly perceptible by the signs which followed. She was baptized. As soon as she had believed in Jesus, she put on, together with her household, the profession of her faith in Christ Jesus. Happy Lydia to have a household which believed in Jesus. Happy Lydia to see them all baptized with her. Now, there is a danger in certain sections of the church to make too much of baptism by linking it with regeneration as baptismal regeneration. But there is an equally great danger among us who are called Baptists of making too little of baptism. We cannot make too much of it because our belief that none ought to be baptized but those who are regenerate already will always be a healthy check for our making too much of it. 
but we may make too little of it. We ought to insist very strongly upon the duty of all believers who have found the Savior to obey the second gospel command, for he that believes and is baptized shall be saved. We do not doubt that all who believe shall be saved, but still for our part, when we see baptism put in so close connection with believing, we should not be disobedient to our master's command. We think it to be a sweet sign of a humble and broken heart when the child of God is willing to obey a command which is not essential to his salvation, which is not forced upon him by a selfish fear of damnation. We say it is no small sign of grace when as a simple act of obedience and of communion with his master in his burial to the world and resurrection to a new life, the young convert yields himself to be baptized. Lydia was baptized, but her good works did not end at the water. She then would have the apostles come to her house. She will bear the shame of being thought to be a follower of the crucified Jew, a friend of the despised Jewish apostle, the renegade, the turncoat. She will have him in her house. And though he says no out of his bashfulness to receive anything, yet she constrains him. For love is in her heart, and she has a generous spirit. And while she has a crust of bread, it shall be broken with the man who brought her to Christ. She will give not only the cup of cold water in the prophet's name, but her house shall shelter him. Brethren, I do not think much of a conversion where it does not touch a man's substance. And those people who pretend to be Christ's people and yet live only for themselves and do nothing for him or for his church give but sorry evidence of having been born again. A love to the people of God has always been a distinguishing mark of the true convert. Look then at Lydia and remember that she is but one specimen of many Let her case rest before you and let the prayer go up. Lord, bring in Lydia's this morning according to your mighty grace. We now look at the case again by way of contrast. There is another story in the chapter. Read it carefully, for there is a remarkable contrast between the two. In the case of the jailer, we see no signs of previous preparation for the reception of the word. He seems to be coarse, rough, brutal. It may be he did no more than his orders required of him when he treated Paul so harshly, for it is written, having received such a charge, he thrust them into the inner prison. But the probabilities are that looking with a thorough contempt upon the two enthusiasts who had plunged themselves into this trouble, he was not at all likely to adjust the stocks in any comfortable manner, or see to their ease in any way. He was a rough, veteran, legionary, probably, who had been elevated to the jailer's office. He had gone to sleep. No preparation, surely, in sleep for the reception of the word. The earthquake comes. The man springs out of his bed in terror. He grasps his sword and would have killed himself. He is in the very act of committing suicide when a voice is heard. Do yourself no harm. We are all here. Now, 
we cannot discover the slightest atom of preparation for his conversion. He is as far off from hope as a man can be and is just upon the edge of damnation, near to running before the bar of his maker with hands red with his own blood. Beloved, there are conversions such as these. They may not be very plentiful, but there are such, and there have been such in this house of prayer. Men have come under the sound of the word with an intention of despising and laughing at it. They have come with their hearts full of venom and enmity. They have despised the preacher and despised the truth. They have come fresh from the foulest haunts of sin. They were proposing yet further to plunge into the depths of iniquity. They were enemies of God by wicked works. They made their hearts harder than stone. And yet, all of a sudden, the ponderous hammer of the word has come upon them and the flint was made to fly into a thousand shivers. The proud sinner became humble as a little child. Paul's case is somewhat similar to that of the jailer, you remember, and there are cases of persons here today who can, as they read the jailer's story, say, such was I once, as great a stranger from God as he, and as little likely to be called by grace as he was, and yet grace came and made me a new creature in Christ Jesus. Here, was no preparation, while in Lydia's case, there was much which went to prepare the way for the grace of God. Another contrast is perceptible in the fact that she was in the place where the grace of God was likely to meet with her. She was in God's house, at least in the spot which had been dedicated to his worship. She was engaged in prayer, but not so the jailer. He is not in a place where the gospel is at all likely to come. His office keeps him in the midst of felons, of murderers, and criminals of all sorts. If grace shall come to the jail, it will come to a graceless place indeed. His occupation was not that which would foster any religious ideas. Doubtless, he was superstitious, and there was no point upon which a Roman was more superstitious than concerning an earthquake. It was one of the things which made the stout hearts of Roman legionaries tremble in a moment. It was the earthquake which made the guards at the tomb of our Savior become like dead men, swooning from fright. And this earthquake had much the same effect upon the jailer. He was not seeking after God. He had not a thought about God. His thoughts were hellward, and his course was toward the pit. But in a moment... At God's voice, the current of his thoughts changes its direction and flows where it had never gone before. So have I known men who were going on with all their might toward the realms of darkness, with their free and stout will, determining to inherit eternal damnation. But the hour has struck, sovereign mercy has come forth, and they, wonders to all, but greatest wonders to themselves, have suddenly become heirs of God and children of the Most High. May such wonders still be done. Yet further, we do not find in Lydia's case that there was anything like an earthquake. 
There were no great shakings and alarms. It was a still, small voice. The jailer sprang in and came trembling. We doubt not that Lydia felt her need of a savior and that her cry was, What must I do to be saved? But still we find very little about her trembling or being overwhelmed with the terrors of conscience. She was gently led by the hand of the Eternal Father. The light dawned upon her as the morning's dawn, a gradual enlightening of the darkness. Grace came to her as the shower which first begins as a mist and then thickens into a heavy dew and then becomes a gentle sprinkling and afterward empties the clouds upon the soil. To the jailer, it was like an April storm, beginning with big drops and dashing into a torrent in a few moments. To the jailer, it was as though the sun should rise in an instant and turn the thickest night into full blaze of noon. Not so in Lydia's case. Now, note, dear friends, these differences, because they may help to solve many of your difficulties. Do not expect all to be converted in the same way. Do not suppose you are all to pass through the same terrors, nor all to be led by the same gentle methods. Our God is the God of variety. In creation and in providence, there are no two things exactly alike. In the works of grace, we are not to have Christians fit into a mold, all fashioned into the same shape. But there is in every conversion something distinct and separate from every other. And every man must expect to perceive in the mirror of his experience some distinct features of his conversion, different from those of any other. Why do you not see that the means which converted Lydia would have not been of any avail to the jailer? The jailer would not go to the place by the riverside. He would have laughed at the idea of sitting down with a parcel of women. You would not find him listening to Paul. He would sneer at the very thought. I go and listen to a renegade Jew whom his own nation has cast off? On the other hand, an earthquake would not have been appropriate to Lydia's character. Good, gentle soul, it might have frightened her out of her wits. And instead of making her cry, what must I do to be saved? It is very likely she would have been in a swoon, if not altogether dead. The same quantity of alarm, which will bring a strong man down into something like reason, might just drive a tender-hearted woman out of her reason altogether. Gentle Lydia and the rough jailer are two very different people. She, again, had been a moral and excellent woman. He has probably been tutored in sin. There must be different methods with different temperaments. Does the farmer use the same machines in threshing different kinds of grain? Are all seeds sown in the same fashion? Do we not feel with regard to our children that we can speak a sharp word to one and he will scarcely feel it, but that the same expression will break another boy's heart? One child needs the rod and there are others upon whom a touch of the rod might cause injury. Certainly, then, it must be so in the constitution of the soul, and therefore God deals with us each in different ways, 
And we are not to question the sincerity of our conversion because it is not precisely like our favorite model, but we are rather to see whether its fruits are the same, whether it comes from God, whether it leads to Christ. And if it does all this, it does not matter in what mold it is run. So much for that point. But here, as I generally like, if I can, to place two truths side by side, we have our third point, namely, the comparison between the two. Because they are essentially alike, though circumstantially different. In both cases, dear friends, providence worked together with grace. Providence brings Lydia to Philippi. Providence shakes the prison. God makes the realm of nature subservient to his will in both cases. There is a demand for purple at Philippi. I do not know how it came about. I cannot tell whether there were new fashions among the ladies at Philippi at that time or what it was, but for some reason or other, Lydia gets to Philippi. Well, now, that is providence which brings her there. The same providence, by another revolution of its wheel, has appointed that jailer to keep the prison. Why was he jailer to that particular prison? Why is Paul brought to Philippi at all? And how is it that through the accidental circumstance of the demoniac woman having been healed, Paul is beaten with rods and thrust into prison? Then comes the earthquake. Link within link and wheel within wheel, providence works its way. So it is in every case, whether it is conversion by thunder and lightning or by the still, small voice. There was in both cases a distinct work of God. We see it in Lydia's case and have dwelt upon it. Even more distinctly, we perceive it in the jailer's case, for what but irresistible grace could have made him cry, What must I do to be saved? In both instances, too, the word of God is essential. For we read concerning the jailer, as we did before concerning Lydia, they spoke unto him the word of the Lord and to all who were in his house. The earthquake cannot do without the minister. And though the mighty power of God can take the natural bonds from every prisoner, yet he does not choose to take away the spiritual bonds from any one soul without the proclamation of the word. For it pleases God by the foolishness of preaching to save those who believe. And again, in both cases, the same signs followed. The jailer is baptized with all his house, and we are told that they all believed. He washes their wounds, just as Lydia had entertained them, so he begins to wash their poor backs, which were all black and blue and probably bleeding with the hard blows of the lictor's rods. He sets food before them and entertains them with the best he has, and glad enough is he in the morning when he finds that they are not to be kept in prison any longer but may go their way. Here is the same result, the same love 
to the brethren, the same consecration of their substance, the same obedience to the divine command, arise and be baptized. There is an unmistakable likeness among all the people of God. All the children have the Father's features, yet they are not any one of them precisely like another. They are all brought by grace, and grace does its work in the same way, yet as to the details of their conversion, they are as wide as the poles of the earth. We take Lydia's conversion to be a model of the multitudes of conversions which are going on in our midst at the present time and in other churches where God is making bare his arm. The expression used is, the Lord opened Lydia's heart to pay attention to the things that were spoken. Now, what is meant by this? I think we have a summary of the work of the Holy Spirit here. There are several things meant, upon each of which we will dwell briefly. No doubt, the Lord removed prejudice. This prejudice is an evil which we have to fight against in very many. In Lydia's case, it may have been Jewish prejudice. Perhaps the report had reached her as it had most of the Jews concerning Jesus of Nazareth. She knew that her race had hounded him to the death, that her nation had even said, His blood be on us and on our children. But God removed all this prejudice from Lydia's mind. She sat down to listen to Paul with a determination to give him a fair hearing and to weigh the matter and see whether these things were so or not. Somewhat like the Bereans of old who also had their hearts in a measure opened for they searched the scriptures to see whether things were so. The devil often covers men from head to foot in a coat of mail so that when they come where the arrows of God are flying, There is very little hope of their being wounded because there is scarce a joint of the harness which the devil has not protected by an iron rivet of prejudice. You know how he tries in these days to do it. Some silly tales are set afloat about the minister, some inventions of confused brains, or else some old stories which were true of eccentric men whom the worms have eaten 100 years before. All these are appended to the preacher that he may be made to appear in a ridiculous light in order, as the devil thinks, that there may be a prejudice against the word which comes from his lips. And many make up their minds beforehand that they will not like the preaching and they come into the place, as it were, with their ears stuffed full of wool and you cannot get a word in. They have their hearts already so occupied with a certain set of notions that though an angel from heaven should minister the truth, it would need to have the earthquake of the jailer before the truth could enter. In Lydia's case, there was nothing of the sort. She was willing to hear and to give her candid attention to the preacher. Much is gained when this is done. In the next place, When her heart was opened, her desires were awakened. She felt now a wish to understand this matter. And if there was anything in what the apostle was saying about eternal salvation, about complete pardon by the blood of him who was the lamb slain from before the foundation of the world, she said to herself, 
I should like to know about it. I hope it may be true. I wish I may get an interest in these things. So she listens, eagerly desiring to be impressed by the word. She has a hunger and a thirst, and those people have this blessing. They shall be filled. When we get our people, by God's grace, to the point of hungering and thirsting, then we are very thankful to say, this is the opening of the heart. As the oyster, when the tide comes up, opens its shell, so when the tide of grace is coming, God often makes men open their hearts so that now they may get the spiritual supply. Well, there was a desire awakened. But this was not all. There came another kind of opening. Her understanding was now enlightened. Yes, as the apostle went from one point to the next, yes, I see that God did promise a prophet like Moses. This man, Jesus, is like Moses, for he is a prophet mighty in word and deed, which none of our prophets were except Moses. Yes, she said, Yes, Isaiah does speak of him as being despised and rejected of men. That is right. And David does say, They pierced my hands and my feet. They divided my garments among them by casting lots. Yes, she said, I see it in the person of the man, Jesus Christ, whom Paul preaches. I perceive the Messiah who is spoken of in the law and in the prophets. And when he went on to say that faith in this Christ Jesus, who was fastened to the tree, would take away all sin, because this same Christ Jesus had carried upon his blessed shoulders the transgression of all believers. Yes, she said, I see that this is a reasonable doctrine, that of substitution. I can see how God is just for he punishes sin in Christ. And I can see how he is gracious too, for he is able now freely to give out of the fullness of his heart such grace as poor sinners require. So her understanding was opened. She had a clear view of the gospel. She could see in its height and depth and length just that which her soul needed. Then came something else. Now her affections were excited. She felt growing within her a love to him who, though he was equal with God, yet took upon himself the form of a servant. As she heard Paul describe his sufferings, as she pictured to herself the scene around the cross, she thought she could hear the death shriek and mark the flowing blood. And she seemed to think, yes, I love that man. I love that God. My heart goes after him. Oh, that he were mine. Yes, she said, I love that preaching. Sweet to my ears are those doctrines of mercy. All this, I think, is included in the term, her heart was opened. Her affections were now impassioned toward divine things. And then, came faith. She believed the whole of the record. She took it to be absolutely true, as Paul had stated, 
that there had been a Messiah, that he, according to scripture, was the son of God and was also the son of man, that he had suffered the just for the unjust, and that she, believing in him, had her sins forgiven. Faith came through hearing. She took God at his word. She simply and humbly put her soul at the feet of that cross where the blood was dropping, believing that as it fell from heaven, it pleaded for her. And as it dropped on her, it gave her peace with God through Jesus Christ. Faith being given, all the graces followed. Now she hated her sins. She repented. Now she loved righteousness. She sought after holiness. Now she had a bright hope of the many rooms in the Father's house. Now she began to run with holy and happy feelings in the ways of obedience to Christ's commands. And she became not merely a believer in the elements of Christianity, but she went on towards perfection, adding to her faith courage, and to her courage, experience, and to experience brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. Onward she went in the way of her God. All this the master did by opening her heart to pay attention to the things that were spoken of by Paul. And now, beloved, the practical lesson is, let us pray for those who are around us and the many hopeful ones that God would make them like Lydia. Let us put up this petition for our sons and daughters that the God who has put them in the path of his means and to a degree has prepared their minds for the reception of the truth would be pleased to work effectually and savingly and bring them to receive the Savior. As for those in whom God is thus working, oh, that the word I speak this morning might lead them to lay hold on Jesus. Remember, there is nothing for you to do. You have only to trust in Jesus and you are saved. There are no good works required, nor good feelings, nor deep experiences either. You have, just as you are, to believe that Christ can save you and entrust yourself to him as the Savior, and he will save you, save you now with a great, present, and complete salvation. The Lord help you to do it, and he shall have the praise. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon originally preached by Charles Spurgeon. Some of the older language has been updated. Feel free to duplicate and distribute this material, but please do not charge anyone for it or in any way alter the content without permission. You can support this ministry by subscribing, liking, following, sharing, and leaving us positive reviews. Most importantly, please join with us in praying that God would use these sermons to both save those who are lost and impassion His people for His glory.